So ring the bells that still can ring. Forget your perfect offering. There is a crack in everything. That's how the light gets in. Welcome to the Wellness Cast. I'm Joe Bankman, professor at Stanford Law School and also psychologist. My partner in these podcasts is Sarah Weinstein, lawyer turned therapist and external director of the Wellness Project here. Our guest today is Dr. Christine Carter, a sociologist and senior fellow at UC Berkeley's Greater Good Science Center. Dr. Carter is the author of Raising Happiness and a terrific book coming out in paperback this week, The Sweet Spot, How to Accomplish More by Doing Less. Welcome, Christine. Thank you for having me. I'm happy to be here. Hi, I'm Sarah Weinstein. Christine, welcome to the Wellness Cast. We're so glad you're here today to talk with us about The Sweet Spot. So the way it came about for you to be here is that I reached out to you after hearing you give a TED Talk, which I highly recommend people seek out, about truth-telling. And I thought that fit in very well with one of the goals we have for the Wellness Cast, which is to normalize the difficult emotions we all experience. And to make that real, we like to begin by asking our guests to share a hard moment. Okay. Well, I, I have... Um... I've sort of made a career out of my hard moments. So in reference to the, po- the TED Talk um, that, that you mentioned, uh, I think that, that that TED Talk is really more about a series of hard moments related, um, like you said, to truth-telling, but um, even more specifically to people-pleasing, um, which is, is a form of of lying, actually pretending, um, even if it's it's very subtle. So, um, so for me, the big realization uh, came um, when I was, you know, I was just trying to reduce my overall stress and um, physical tension in my body and feelings of being overwhelmed. And I read a study about. Um, how lying is the most stressful state that the human body can possibly be in, right? This is how polygraph tests work because they they obviously don't detect the lies so much as the physiological response of the human nervous system to to a lie. Even if a person doesn't consciously know that they're um, telling a lie or even if the lie is very small, so it's not like I'm saying, oh, I was a big liar and my 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 hard moment was realizing I needed to start telling the truth. Um, it wasn't that at all. For me, the, there was a lot there that I was doing for other people, right? I was people pleasing. I was never thinking about who I was and what I wanted and what I needed to communicate to other people. I was thinking about what other people were expecting of me and how I could meet their expectations. There's a really big difference between being in total integrity to yourself and who you are and um, trying to constantly predict um, and predict what other people want from you and then meet those 
hypothetical expectations. One is a very stressful state. The other is a very blissful state. This is a good moment, I think, to turn to the sweet spot, your book, How to Accomplish More by Doing Less. And one, I'm going to just quote something from your book that I really liked that you just reminded me of. And it's that our sweet spot always tastes of freedom and strength. And when we aren't living in our sweet spot, it tastes of constraint and constriction. Um, And so I, I would just love to hear a little bit about the ideas that framed the book and the personal story that inspired you to write it? Oh, the sweet spot is the overlap between where we have our greatest strength or personal power and where we have the least resistance or our greatest ease. And for me, I was very in touch with the sort of strength circle. I knew what my strengths were. I knew where my power was, but there was really no ease, right? There wasn't a good overlap between where I had my greatest strengths and where I had a lack, you know, a a lack of resistance or, um, or that, that ease piece of things. So if we, if we think about a professional baseball player, for example, what we can see is that they can get hits outside of their sweet spot, but when they do the, the baseball bat will, will literally bend or splinter or break or, um, for, for players who aren't professional and aren't quite as strong, we see injuries to the shoulder and to the wrist. Um, so I am, I am sort of interested in this phenomenon because it turns out to be the perfect metaphor for me. So a physics professor sent me these slow motion clips where we could really see the bat bending but they took, it took place during the world series. And and these were players that were getting hits, like they were getting on base. And I thought, oh my gosh, that was me. That is at the time. And I was thinking, this is me. I I'm able to get hits, but you can see that the bat is bending. And by contrast, when you look at somebody getting a home run in the same game, um, the bat doesn't move at all. You have to imagine it as a very stark difference. Somebody hits the ball out of the park. It has so much more power and there's no movement in the bat or the wrist or the shoulder or anything. It's just right in that sweet spot where there's total power and there's no resistance or no stress. So for me, I watched this and I thought, oh my gosh, I'm getting hits, but my bat is, it's bending, it's splintering, it's breaking, you know, the, it, it's, and I'm not hitting any home runs. So it sounds like you had the realization that you weren't living with quite the ease that you wanted. But what happened from there? Was there a catalyst or some other emotional shift? So for me, the, so what, what was happening basically is that I, you know, I was the executive director of the Greater Good Science Center at UC Berkeley. And I had a full coaching practice. I was speaking everywhere. And, um, and I was working you know, a kind of a compressed schedule so I could pick my kids up in the afternoon. And then, and then I would have these like crazy afternoons that were not very gratifying to me, frankly, um, with the kids. And then I would put them to bed, make dinner, put them to bed. And then I would go back to work, right. I would do all my good think work. I would, you know, that I I needed to do uninterrupted at night. I was very tired. Right. So it just meant I was like, everything was going pretty well for me. Like, but I was really tired. I mean, for me, it really affected my health the most. And, um, I, I got every virus on every airplane I ever went on, but I also just had these low grade strep throats. 
um, all the time. And so, and it was, I did not slow down, but at, at one point I woke up one morning, it was a weekend and I was sicker than usual, right? I had a higher fever than usual. And I, I, and my husband was, was like, why do you sort of sound happy about that? Okay. Here's what was going on. I was having hospital fantasies, which I've now learned is a thing um, because people write them, send me their hospital fa- fantasies all the time, um, where it was like, wow, maybe I'm sick enough that I should go to the hospital and then I can just freaking lay down, right? Like I was imagining that as where I was going to get, uh, be able to justify getting some sleep. And I had a big talk the next day or two days out that, um, you know, where it was a big women's conference and there were, there was not a lot of time to find another speaker like one day. Right. And I mean, it was a perfect, it was devastating professionally for me. The organizers were not super kind. So, so Christine, you have me on the edge of my seat now. Uh, what'd you do? Well, that was the birth of the sweet spot. Um, as a project, I said, all right, I'm going to, I'm going to figure this thing out. It just became my next job. Um, I actually got a lot of really specific coaching around trying to only do things that were really giving me energy that were, um, that were really, uh, in integrity for me. So, so that meant that I stepped down as the executive director of the greater good science center. And people are like, Oh yeah, you couldn't do it all. Right. I'm like, no, that's not it at all. I was only the executive director of the greater good science center because it was a status thing. I mean, the truth for me was that I was doing it because it was prestigious. Yeah. And so let's actually talk more about some of those ingredients that you recommend for people to reach the sweet spot. And the first one in the book is to take recess and for lawyers, this seems particularly relevant, but also very complicated. And it, for lawyers, there seems to be a tension between being busy and keeping up the appearance of being busy on the one hand, but also feeling quite oppressed by how busy they are on the other. Yes, I, I relate so much to this. I talk, I speak to lawyers a lot, and I think that I think you've sort of hit hit it perfectly. Um, I, you know, okay. So taking recess is really about harnessing the, your natural, um, energy patterns in your brain. So we know that, um, you know, most people are familiar with the concept of circadian rhythms and how, um, in a, in a 23 or 24 hour clock, our, our bodies are really keyed to the light. You know, mostly we think about this with sleep, but we also have, um, ultradian rhythms. So throughout, like within that 23 or 24 hour day, our physiological systems fluctuate in very rhythmic ways. And, um, and when, when we try, for example, to focus or just stay really busy, um, for that, the whole time that we're awake, essentially, um, we're, we're sort of going against our nature. Our brain doesn't do that. Just, just in the same way that our brain has waking cycles and sleeping cycles, when, when we're awake, we have different states of consciousness, basically. Sometimes it's focused. Sometimes it's an open consciousness. That when we take recess, when we actually take a break, 
a lot is happening in our brains, a lot more than when we're actually focusing in terms of like the area of our brain um, that the, all the regions in our brain that are all lit up, right? Like that are a- actively working. So when you're just sort of standing in line at the store and not checking your email, just letting your mind wander, I call this strategic slacking because you're not letting your mind wander while you're trying to focus on something else. You're letting your mind wander when it has space to do that. You know, you're not going to get that much done checking your messages or whatever. Um, your, your brain goes into a mode in which it's consolidating, uh, memories. It's, um, it's get, giving you basically better access to things that you've just learned. It's drawing connections between things that didn't previously see as connected. That is where all creative insight comes from, that type of brain activity. Those are the home runs. And those come from recess, from just letting your mind wander. One area I found interesting in the section on take recess was your discussion of the minimum effective dose. Would you tell us a little bit more about that? The minimum effective dose is another metaphor that comes, of course, from from pharmaceuticals, right? Doctors try and prescribe to their patients the minimum dose of any sort of medicine that it, that will be effective. And, um, and because higher levels can become toxic. So the minimum, so you can apply this concept of finding the minimum effective dose to any area in your life. So for me, I was spending a lot of time on email. So the way you do it is you figure out how little time can I spend on email per day? Like, can I, can I get by with checking three times, two times, one time I check twice now? Um, the way you find it is that you reduce to failure, right? The only way that you know is is that your minimum is too low is that it's no longer effective. So um, so you just keep reducing. There were a lot of areas in my life where this freed up a ton of time. Time spent in meetings, um, time spent exercising, right? So I have a, I mean, people tease me because I have a better than nothing exercise routine, which if I don't have time to exercise, it takes me five minutes, which it sounds like how in the, it actually takes me, frankly, it takes me less than five minutes. And people think it's like, in, that's insane. You're not actually exercising. How can that count? But I do 20 push-ups and um, 25 squats, um, or now I can actually do more than 25 in a short period of time. And then I'll do a, a minute and a half to two minute plank. It's not nothing, right? It's really effective to be able to just every single day, tone your muscles in in that sort of minimalistic way. And I'm thinking, Christine, even on a very discreet, uh, concrete level for a busy lawyer, there might be 50 things you do, even at work, where you haven't tested the minimum affected dose. For example, how long are you preparing for each meeting? Are you going over a presentation four times when in fact, once or not at all would be enough given your level of experience and expertise. Exactly. So this makes per- perfectionists very nervous, right? So I'm saying I'm I want to say this is not about lowering the bar. It's not about um not, you know, being as good. It's a way to be better. A lot in your book that might appeal to listeners. I want to ask you about the research on relationships and giving. Okay. Uh, I, I, that's my favorite part of the book and it's towards the back. And I, I always, 
I always want people to just skip right to that part of the book because I think it's, you know, it, so here's where this, it's a different field of science, but I mean, it's older, right? Like if we look at science in every field, sociology, anthropology, psychology, neuroscience, which is pretty new, um, uh, related to well-being, so physical and emotional well-being, happiness, right? For the last 150, 200 years, whatever we've got, the the single strongest and most consistent finding is that the our happiness, as well as our overall well-being, is best predicted by the breadth and the depth of our relationships with other people. Our connections to other people are the linchpin for everything we want in life, really, I think. What are some tips for giving it? Because I think when you say it, our listeners are going to say, yeah, okay, I get it, but I've got this busy life. What am I, what can I do? Yeah. So, um, so, so the first thing is to just think about like your little tiny connections to other people. So what I, and by tiny, I mean, tiny, like if you're walking down the street and you make eye contact with, um, the people that you're passing or just smiling and saying hello to people like little tiny connections to other people really matter because they signal to your nervous system that you are safe. And what happens is when we feel connected to other people, um, and, and you know, our, we think of ourselves as separate individuals, but our nervous systems are connected to the nervous systems of all the people around us. That's why our emotions are so contagious. Um, and you know, we connect through our senses, through touch primarily, but also eye contact, um, hearing the voice of somebody familiar. Um, um, and so just keeping, so keeping that in mind, right? So what happens when we just make eye contact, when we let ourselves experience connectedness, and I mean real life connectedness, I don't mean Facebook <laughs> connectedness, right? So um, that could be as simple as when you go in to get your latte, making eye contact, looking up for your darn from your darn phone and making eye contact and and having a little bit of small talk with the barista or somebody who's actually in line um, with you. And, and what that does is it signals to your nervous system that you're connected, that all is well. You you move from what's called self-survival, which is a very stressful state. Um, to from a physiological perspective to what psychologists call species survival. Um, and that just enables, it just sort of kicks in more resources in your brain, right? You're the human organism is more motivated to keep this, the whole species alive than it is to save herself or himself. Well, you've just outlined why your book will be one of my mother, who is in her 80s, one of her favorites. Um, she's been talking to strangers for her whole life, or at least since I've known her. It's been a big point of dispute between us, but she is certainly one of the happier people that I know. So it's it's really uh, it's a really interesting thing for people to play with because we're we're taught to be afraid of talking to strangers, right? That we're taught to, that there's more to fear from people that we don't know from a very early age. 
and it's really, this is a limiting belief. It's really important to start to question um, this, like who is dangerous and who is not dangerous. Like the person standing in front of you at the coffee shop is probably not dangerous. And, um, and so then we move from, of course, there's not dangerous to, um, to, well, he doesn't want to talk to me anyway. He's busy. He's looking at his phone. Well, there's research on this too, right? People uh, think that they don't want to be chatted with and that other people won't want to be chatted with. But when on commuter trains, this, you know, the people are set up in these studies to, to be chatters, basically, um, the, their experience of it is, is universally positive both for the chatters and the chatties, even though everybody thinks they're not going to like this, they love it because it, because it affects your nervous system in, in such a positive way. And, you know, one of the things that impressed me about the book, and, and you've stressed that here, is this doesn't just work for an extrovert. People are going to listen to this and they're going to say, well, I can tell Christine, she's probably a real extrovert. This works for everyone. I'm not an extrovert. I know I'm, I'm very chatty and I like to talk about all this kind of stuff. My nature is extremely sensitive, extremely shy. I would say my fear response much bigger than normal. So thank you for saying it works for everyone. I do think that to different degrees, this is, is going to, is going to work for everyone. And what we know is that introverts benefit from connections to other people just as much as extroverts do. I'm thinking that this would be a great experiment for our listeners because they can just try one day consciously smiling and saying hi or just smiling and and see how that works for them. Right. And I mean, it. You, it's just eye contact, really, right? Like to just... I mean, you don't want to stare somebody down. You want it to be friendly eye contact. But, and I would say start even smaller than that. Like how about with everybody you interact with in a retail environment, instead of having your phone out, your phone will be put away and you'll actually see them. And if you don't feel like chit-chatting, you can just make eye contact and acknowledge. Just acknowledging another person is a gift for them. It's a real act of kindness. And it's also one of these things that, will make you happier and, and calmer. It will decrease overwhelm in your life. Well, you've, you've convinced me. I want to ask Sarah, one thing we do in this uh, wellness cast, Christine, is every week we experiment with a suggestion our previous guest made, and then we report back on it as if did it work for us? And our previous guest was Heidi Brown, who wrote a terrific book called The Introverted Lawyer. And one of her suggestions was journaling, and another one was daily strenuous exercise. And uh, Sarah, did you try them out? Um, so I do the daily strenuous exercise. I do 90 minutes of yoga several days a week. And I didn't do the morning. Heidi Brown recommended something that she calls morning pages, which she gets up in the morning and does like three pages of writing. And I didn't do that. And I'm actually kind of curious as to why I didn't. But what I do instead is I take a note on the note section of my iPhone every day or almost every day just to check in like a one sentence note about how I'm doing emotionally or how I'm feeling about certain issues. And then at the end of every month, I email that note 
to myself. And I keep, I've been doing this for about five years. And so I have um, folders with emails from the years um, and I can go back and kind of check in on it. How was I feeling about in a certain issue? What's changed about that? What's the same? And I just feel like it's a way to get things out, but also to keep me grounded and give perspective over the years. So I don't know if you do anything like that, Joe, or if you um, had a chance to do the exercise or the morning pages. Well, first of all, I'm impressed, Sarah. I'm still learning things about you. And that seems like a, a great technique. Maybe I should just interview you one week. Well, to be honest, journaling never seemed attractive to me. And in fact, it didn't do much for me. Maybe my attitude was just too negative. I am a big believer in exercise. I tell my clients it's a kind of magic pill we always carry around. And some of us have never taken so, Christine, um, just to end, do you have, I know, obviously, you've told us several techniques, but do you have like one that is just a personal favorite of yours? The Aside from the things that we've already talked about, the, the most important thing for me is that I now strategically check my email. And I mean, I have like entire webinars on how to, re- how to do this, but I will just say I do only check my email two times per day. And it's just like freed up my entire work day. <laughs> you know, I'll tell you, I've worked this through with hundreds of lawyers. You can do it. And it frees up a ton of time. The quality of your response in your email does go up pretty dramatically. Um, and the number of emails you can respond to the goes up. The error rate goes down. Um, so for me, not checking compulsively because the email is just an other people's to-do list for you, right? Like it sabotages <laughs> your entire um, workday. Um, and keeping that email closed while I do the work that's important to me is a, has been a massive game changer. I was just going to thank you, Christine. This has been terrific. Yes, thanks so much, Christine. I've appreciated what you've had to say today. And thank you so much for being with us on the Wellness Cast. Oh, it's my pleasure. It's been really fun to do this with you. As always, if anyone would like to access any of the resources we spoke about on the podcast, including how to find Dr. Christine Carter and to get her book, The Sweet Spot, please see our website at www.law.stanford.edu backslash wellness project. Also, if anyone has feedback for us, please review us on iTunes. We're always interested in hearing what people think and to get ideas for future wellness cast topics. Thanks so much for listening and please tune in again next time for another episode of the Wellness Cast.